Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we're wrapping up our current mini-series we've been calling Light at the End of the Tunnel. Today, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we take a look at a woman who seemed to understand something about Jesus' coming death that everyone else around him seemed to miss. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. And if I haven't met you yet, my name is uh, Tim, and we're glad you're with us this morning. Uh, We have been in a series, actually, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, We've been uh, now almost... Uh, almost a full year in the Gospel of Matthew, walking through the life of Jesus, and we are coming to the end. Uh, in fact, we're, um, uh, we're picking our story up today on a Wednesday. Uh, that following day in the life of Jesus will be a Thursday, and that Thursday is Passover day. And uh, the way uh, our Jewish friends tell time is from evening and morning. So the day starts in the evening uh, because the scriptures begin, and there was evening and there was morning. So they start their day in the evening, uh, and so the last day, uh, the day that will lead to Jesus' crucifixion, begins on Thursday night, and then Jesus is crucified on Friday. We're, in the, we're, we're on the day before all of that's going to play out. If you're with us for the first time this morning, I think you'll, you'll pick up on the story, but um, highly recommend uh, spending some time in Matthew if you've missed parts of the series or all of the series. Uh, Matthew is a really powerful book that tries to help us understand uh, who Jesus was, especially who Jesus was linked to our Old Testament. So uh, with that said, let's pick up our story. Uh, Again, on Wednesday night, the night before it's all going to play out, uh, Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man, which is a reference to himself, uh, he's quoting Daniel there, Old Testament book. Uh, And as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the teacher and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Just pause there. Um, Jesus says, uh, the night before, so this is the night before he's going to be arrested and passed over. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to be crucified. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die. So I thought, uh, as we kind of wrap up our, begin to wrap up our series, uh, let's, let's think together this morning about dying. It's Thanksgiving weekend. Let's talk about dying. Um, we've, we've spent some time talking about the afterlife and uh, the next, the, the life after this life and where do we go and what, what's, what's the Bible tell us about all that. Um, that important conversation, that's not the conversation I want to think about today. I want to, th- the thing I'm interested in thinking about together today is not where do we go after we die? But the, the, the idea of dying itself. Um, why is dying for so many people, the process of dying, the idea that we're going to die, why is dying as a subject so absolutely terrifying to so many of us? Uh, why is dying, um, and unless Christ comes back before, uh, before we die, um, it's something we will all do. It is something that every person, it's a fate shared by every single person who's ever lived, from the wealthiest, most successful, most famous world rulers to uh, the most unrecognized, uh, underappreciated people on our planet. Uh, Dying is a fate that we all share, and yet for most of us, 
We don't want to think about it. The one universal truth, uh, unless Christ comes back in our lifetime, uh, but, the, but the one universal truth, is, if that doesn't happen, is you're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. Uh, in fact, um, what you know is that we already are dying, like at a cellular level. Depends on how you look at it, I guess. But um, what we're told, at least what, I, what I've come to understand, is that at a cellular level, we're all at some form dying, and uh, we're all somewhere in the process of our bodies kind of shutting down on us. And yet, death is something we go out of our way to spend a lot of time and energy trying to avoid. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. What I want to talk about this morning is why. Uh, and are we missing out on something, uh, something crucial to what it means to be alive, to, what, like, to, to how to best live this life, uh, to who our God is, are we missing out on something by avoiding the subject of death? So in a message we're calling Avoiding Death, uh, let's talk about avoiding death. Um, uh, this actually, I think, is the heart of the story, the main story we're going to look at this morning, a uh, story right after the passage we just read. I think the heart of the story is all about avoiding death. Can you see it? Can you not? Let's, let's walk through the story. If you have your Bible still, we're going to be in verse 6 of Matthew 26. Uh, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's our story. It's a, be- it's a beautiful story. It's a, it's a story, if you grew up in and around church, you probably heard this story before. Um, however, it is a little bit odd. Would you agree? Like, if you just kind of step back from the whole thing, if this is your first encounter of Jesus, it's a bit of a hard story to, like, what do you do with this? Um, Jesus, uh, especially in the placement in the text. So Jesus has just delivered this passionate speech about how the temple is going to come down because of the religious hypocrisy within it. Um, the Romans are going to come in. They're going to destroy the temple. Jesus gives this long uh, section. We, we spent some time thinking about the rapture and hell and all this apocalyptic language. That came before this. What's coming right after this is uh, one of the most uh, profound stories in our Bible. Jesus gathers his friends around a table, uh, knowing that Judas, who's going to betray him, is at that table. And Jesus predicts that they're going to betray him. And he gathers this meal. We call it today communion or the Eucharist, uh, the, the, the Last Supper. This story sits right between those stories. What do we do with this particular story? Um, and uh, now when the story is often preached, we often... Uh, remove it from our context. We'll, we'll preach the story, uh, and we'll preach the story as, uh, essentially the story as it's often preached. If you pull it outside of Holy Week, it often goes something like, uh, here we have this lady, and she's poor, and she's got a very expensive bottle of perfume, and so she pours it on Jesus, and, um, and the disciples don't get it. They just miss the point. And, that's, and, and we talk about how, like, do we miss the point, and how do we miss the point? And, um, and it's, it's a powerful illustration but you do have to ask the question, do the disciples miss the point? If you read the story, do they miss the point? Because what's their point? Their point seems to make sense, right? Their point is, Jesus, this, this perfume is worth a lot of money. Shouldn't we give this to the poor? Shouldn't we have sold this for the poor? 
And you're thinking, well, yeah, isn't that, isn't that what Jesus has been all about his whole life, right? Let's care for the poor. Let's not spend on ourselves. Let's care for the poor. Let's make sure that people who are the, the most poor are cared for. So why is Jesus so angry at the disciples who just, how do they miss the point if they want to care for the poor? Hasn't that been what Jesus has been all about? Right? He's born in a manger, not a mansion. He's born as a, uh, he, he chooses to live a life as a, a uh, homeless rabbi, not as a wealthy king. So, like, very rarely do you see Jesus saying, no, 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 don't worry about the poor. The poor you will, doesn't that feel dismissive a little bit? The poor, you're going to always have poor people with you, but, but give it to me now. Like, what do we do with that? Um, it, this would be equivalent to, in some ways, uh, if somebody came up to you and says, uh, I'm very poor, but I have a car and I like you, and so you may have my car. Would you take that car? If you knew that the, like this person's poor, they're going to give you their car, would you take their car? Would you? Some of you are like, I would. No, you wouldn't. So why does Jesus, why does Jesus? And now you read the text and you say, that, well, the text tells us why Jesus does it. Jesus says, I'm doing this to prepare, to prepare for burial. She, or she's doing this to prepare me for burial. And we hear that and we think, okay, awesome, but okay, how does Jesus get angry at the disciples? How, do they, how are they supposed to know that? How are they supposed to know the hidden like, meaning behind all this? How are they supposed to know that he's preparing, uh, she's preparing him for burial? Perhaps, and I think this is the heart of this text, the woman who's pouring the perfume sees something about this moment that the disciples can't see. They should see it, but they can't see it. There's something going on that is, is stopping the disciples from seeing what Jesus has been trying to help the disciples see this whole time. Here's the thing I think Jesus has been trying hard to help them see. He's going to die. He's told them he's going to die. In fact, we just read it. Uh, verse 2 says, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. It's pretty clear, isn't it? I'm going to die. Is it? Uh, now, maybe the as you know is about the Passover. The pa as you know, the Passover is two days away. But it, it seems to me that the as you know is also about the fact that they're going to hand him over to be crucified. And yet, if you look at the disciples, it doesn't seem like they know. right? If you actually just watch their actions, it doesn't seem like, they're, like that it's absorbed into them that Jesus is going to be killed. He's going to die. Uh, in fact, right before the story, they come out of the temple, and, and, and their exact quote was, look at all the big, beautiful buildings. The, the, they're in this story, they want to take the perfume and sell it to the poor. They're making plans about the future. They're looking at the big, beautiful buildings in Jerusalem. There's lots of big, beautiful buildings, especially the temple. But they're kind of acting like tourists, are they not? Like they're a little bit like making plans for the future. Uh, check out the scenery. They're not acting like the person that means the most to them is about to be crucified, one of the most violent, painful deaths you can ever imagine. They're not acting like they're about to lose their best friend, their rabbi, their teacher, the one that they've seen is Lord. They're, they, they're not acting like that. How do they miss it? Now, maybe it's, okay, maybe, uh, but Jesus just told them that he's going to die. Like, yeah, and if you actually read through the text uh, carefully, the, the, the entirety of Matthew, this isn't the only time Jesus has told them that he's going to die. Have you noticed this? He's told them he's going to die not once, not twice, not three times. This is the fourth time Jesus has told them he's going to die. Let me show you. Don't take my word for it. Let me show you each of the instances and tell me if you think Jesus is being vague here. Okay, so this is the first one. Uh, Matthew 16. 
From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Is he clear? Second instance, a chapter later, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Is he being clear? Uh, Matthew 20, a couple chapters later, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. So the whole time he's like, hey, when I go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. Where is he now? Jerusalem. Okay, so he's been warning them. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem. I've been telling you about this. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. Has he been clear? Would you agree? Jesus has been clear. They're going to kill him. So why is it the disciples miss it? That's the question. Um, it, it's not that he hasn't said it. He's been clear. He's repeated it. Not once, not twice, not three times. Four times, if you include the passage that we started with, four times he said, they're going to kill me. When I get to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. How is it they miss it? Oh, how are they not hearing him here? In fact, if you notice, every time he mentions he's going to be killed, their immediate response is denial. Denial, denial, denial. Uh, this is chapter 16. Jesus tells him he's going to die. Before he can finish his thought, we read that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Matthew 17, Jesus tells him he's going to die. We read the passage. The very next thing that they're doing is they're arguing about the temple tax. Do we have to pay the tax? Do we not have to pay the tax? Uh, then uh, Matthew 20, Jesus tells him he's going to die. Two of the disciples, the very next story, two of the disciples send their mom to Jesus, and their mom wants to know, which of the disciples are your favorite? Tell me my boys are the best. Like, it feels like, how are they missing this? Maybe asking a more relevant question is, how, why is death so difficult for us to think about? Uh, especially as Christians, uh, why, why for us is death so difficult for us to think about? This is especially true in our world, is it not? Um, this is especially true in our world. We will do everything we can to avoid seeing death. Uh, I, remember, I remember the first time I saw death. Remember the first time you saw death? Um, first time I saw death, I was a teenager, and uh, my grandma for the last two years had been battling cancer, and it was, um, it was uh, as a teenager, it was really hard because like, you, you knew your grandma growing up, and then all of a sudden... I think I have a picture of my grandma. I'll show you my grandma. This is, uh, I think my mom was younger than me in this picture, but that's my grandma on the right. And uh, <clears throat> she was going through chemo and radiation to fight the cancer, and it, um, she put up a fight. And, uh, and yet, as a teenager, I remember over the course of two years, uh, her hair, she lost her hair, and then she lost her strength. I remember, I have this vivid memory of sitting in the back of church with her one Sunday, because um, she wanted to stay in the back so no one could see her, and um, her on being unable to stand, and, uh, and then her wearing a wig for a while, but then deciding, I don't want to wear a wig, and so she got rid of the wig, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then she passed away, and I uh, have this memory of the visitation, and uh, it was my first time at a visitation. Uh, it was the first time I've experienced death, and I, I remember the, the funeral home director um, gathering up the family, and then I think he could tell that I was nervous, because he pulled me aside and said, hey, we're going to we're, we're going to go, there's an open casket, 
and there'll be an opportunity for you to view grandma um, before all your like, like relatives and friends and family show up. Uh, there's be an opportunity for you to view grandma. And um, I, I remember thinking, I don't want to do that. Uh, you've been to a visitation where there's an open casket? And uh, I, I have this memory of uh, feeling like I had to because I'm looking out and I'm seeing all of my family and they're going to do their personal viewing. And I remember thinking that if I don't do this, they're going to think I don't care. And I do care. Like, I, I missed her a lot. But if I don't do this, they're going to think I don't care, so I have to. And uh, let, me, let me pause here. Uh, since this day, I've now done this, this experience I've had well over 100 times, lots of funerals, uh, lots of open caskets. And I should, should name that I think funeral directors have one of the most difficult and important jobs uh, in our world. Uh, they work with families to help bring closure uh, they, they work with families. Somehow a funeral director, if you've ever been around a great funeral director, they're able to enter into somebody's grief. I don't know how they do it. Day in and day out, they come into your grief. They, they sit with you in the grief. They kind of, they don't, they're not a loud presence in the room, but they're a presence in the room. So I say this, hear me say this clearly. I have a lot of respect for funeral directors. And yet that day I was so angry at this man. Like, how dare you? I remember going, <clears throat> if you've been to a visitation, you know, this is, you know this experience, but I remember going up to the casket and looking in the casket and just being absolutely furious um, because grandma was in the casket, um, but my grandma, uh, for the last two years, I watched her fight. I watched her lose her hair. I watched her lose her strength, but I watched a woman fight. I've got a lot of good memories in, of the worst season of her life. I've got good memories of her fighting. And I'm looking down in a casket at a woman who's dressed up like grandma, um, got a wig on, got grandma's clothes on, um, but it's like someone's faking it. It's like somebody dressed up like grandma and then took a nap in, in this box. And uh, this woman didn't look like she fought a day in her life. And I just remember standing over the casket and being so angry I've, I've thought about that moment a lot um, over the last 30 years. Uh, I've thought about the moment a lot because uh, even in death, we do our best to make sure they look alive. Like, what, what, what does that mean? And I get it. Like, I get, like, this is a moment of closure. Again, I have high respect for the profession. But um, even in death, there's something about we can't look at death. Like, why can't we look at death? Why can't we see it? Far more trivially, uh, uh, culturally, I think, in general, for many of us, um, we live in a, for the first time in humanity, we live in a, a day and age where we don't have to look at death at all, right? For the first time, and only in a small portion of the world, you and I live a life where we don't actually have to see it. I was thinking about this as I um, was going grocery shopping and looking down the meat aisle. I buy my meat, and it comes prearranged in cellophane, right? Like, it's, it's wrapped in plastic. Uh, I didn't kill that cow, I didn't, uh, I didn't see the cow die. I ate the cow. It was delicious, but I didn't see the cow. Uh, I didn't kill the cow. And yet, uh, here it is uh, pre-packaged for me. This is, not, this is an experience that you and I have today, uh, and I'm grateful for this experience. I don't want to have to kill everything I eat. And in the history of humanity, this is a brand new experience. Most people have had to kill something. They've actually had to see it. They actually had to do the work. I, anybody, any hunters here? Who's hunting? Yeah, most of our hunters are not here. Um, 
I think this is why hunting for so many people is such a sacred moment. For so many people, um, they'll, they'll come back and they don't know how to put words to it, but I often hear like this was such a sacred moment for me out hunting um, because there's something about hunting where you actually, it's almost like by, by uh, killing the animal, you see the value of an animal's life, that if you're just buying the animal in prepackaged cellophane wrapping, we just miss. Um, but by and large, culturally, we have done a really good job. And again, I'm grateful for the comforts. I am so grateful that uh, we have end-of-life care where somebody, but, but up until now, your grandparents, your loved ones wouldn't die in a hospital bed. They would die in a home, and it was often your home. We've removed that. Uh, by and large, for the majority of the world, through the majority of history, the food you ate, you actually had to work for. You had to kill. You had to, you had to raise the animal, then kill the animal. Or you had to go out in the middle of a cold day, and you had to hunt the animal. And, and so there was something about that experience where you recognize, I, okay, I've seen death. It helps me realize how precious life is. You have to wonder, okay, I'm, I'm grateful for the comforts. I'm not saying we should go back to having to kill everything on our own. And I'm grateful for the comforts. But you have to wonder if we've lost something in keeping death at a distance. You ever wonder about this? Like, is there something that we've just lost, that we've been unable, by being unable to look at it? Uh, and you have to ask the question, like, what's driving it? What, what's driving us to do this? Is it fear? Is that what drives us to, to keep it at such a distance? Is it, like, why are we so terrified of this? Um, I read a couple books before, right before the pandemic, uh, a couple books by this Israeli historian and professor. His name is uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Has anybody read? Uh, there's two books. Uh, one is called Sapiens, and the other is Homo Deus. Anybody read Sapiens or Homo Deus? Of course. I'm so not surprised that you raise your hand. Anybody else read either of these books? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Sapiens is, uh, he's looking at kind of a history of Homo sapiens, and um, he's asking lots of really interesting questions about history. Interesting book. Uh, then he wrote a second book uh, called Homo Deus. And uh, in that book, he's laying out the potential future of humanity. So the first one's all about where we've been. And the second one is all about where we're going. Now, what's interesting about that book is he argues in the book that from the majority of history, humans have spent most of our energy trying to conquer or mitigate three things. Here's his three things. Disease, war, and famine. His argument is that for the majority of history, disease, war, and famine have been the things that have posed an existential threat to you and I's existence. Like the disease, war, and famine can wipe us all out. And so we've spent the majority of, our, of history trying to fight disease, war, and famine. He then makes this claim. He argues that we, have now, we now live in a day and age where we have conquered those three things. Not that there's not disease, not that there's not war, and not that there's not famine, but his argument is we now live in a day and age where those things are no longer existential threats. None of us are worrying that like, the, our, our species is going to cease to exist because of disease, war, or famine. We've, he argues we've conquered those things. His follow-up question then is, whether you agree with that or not, his follow-up question, and the majority of the book is, so now what are we going to try to conquer? What's the next thing that we're going to try to conquer? Humans, what are we going to do next? His argument, or his thesis, is that our next venture will be to conquer death itself. That sounds far-fetched. I get it. Uh, however, um, 
He argues, according to him, that it's not such a crazy idea. This is a quote from the book, Homo Deus. Uh, He says, humans always die due to some technical glitch. The heart stops pumping blood. The main artery is clogged by fatty deposits. Cancer cells spread in the liver. Germs multiply in the lungs, yada, yada, yada. So he argues that it's a technical problem. And if we could solve the technical problem, you know, why does the heart stop beating? Why do the... If we could solve the technical problem, we could push off death and maybe even get to the spot where we have such good technology that cancer cells, we could turn them off. And uh, when the heart starts, like we could, some device we could put in us and we could keep the heart moving. We could, we could stay alive. He argues we might be able to conquer death. His, he quotes experts, and experts uh, are now suggesting whether you, again, whether you agree, I don't know. This is beyond my pay grade. But experts are now suggesting that humans could conquer death by 2200, so like 170 years. Um, others say it could be as soon as 2100. Some argue, I've read a few experts, experts, I read a few uh, longevity specialists that are arguing that by 2050, if you have a big enough bank account and a healthy enough body, you will be able to push off death one decade at a time, by 2050. Now, um, so he, he starts there. That's like his premise. He then makes this, and this is the thought experiment that I find really interesting. His thought experiment is, okay, let's imagine that were to happen. If you, your life now goes on, uh, let's just say it doubles, right? And so instead of 80 years, you have 160 years. How does that affect the way we interact with each other? So let's imagine you get married at 40. And, uh, and you then continue to live on for another 120 years. How does your marriage shift? Right? Uh, how about this one? You, you had kids, and you raised those kids uh, as they were teenagers all the way till 20. And then at 20, they move out of the house. And you go on living for another 140 years. You maybe get to a spot where you don't remember your kids as infants. How does that affect your relationship? Uh, You have a boss. You can't stand this boss. Um, But the boss isn't going to retire for 90 years. (laughs) (laughs) So his argument is, what do do we do with all this? Now, he calls the book Homo Deus. Uh, Deus is uh, Latin for God. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but it's Latin for God. Uh, And the reason he calls it that is because he's arguing that the next step in human evolution is we will be uh, gods. Now, Lots of thoughts, lots of opinions. Uh, where do we go with that? Um, I, I don't know. The reason I bring it up is because my, my hunch is, some of you are terrified by that idea that why would we do this? Like, why would we play God? And, but I'm guessing that there's some people who are thinking, some of you are thinking, you, you wouldn't probably admit it out loud, but some of you are thinking, this sounds like kind of a sweet deal. Like, to not have to, to, to know that maybe someday they can turn off a cancer cell? That sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Sign me up. What is it about death that uh, we are terrified of it? We don't want to look at it. We don't want to see it. The ones we love, our moment of closure is uh, we, we don't want to actually see the experience. Um, we push it somewhere else. We buy our, our meat in cellophane wrapping. Um, we will do everything we can to avoid it. And if we are given the option, we will try to conquer it. What do we do? Um, now, uh, back to the, let's go back to the text. Uh, Back to our story. Jesus has said four times to his disciples, I'm going to die. Why won't they take him seriously? 
And why is it that a woman living in this town, she seems to understand that Jesus is going to die. She gets what's happening. She understands what's right before her. She under, why is it that she can see and they can't see? In fact, they won't actually fully understand what's going to happen to Jesus until the moment he's arrested, he's betrayed. Uh, and even then, they're going to go off and run on their own. Uh, they're going to run from the cross. Even in his death, they still are struggling to understand what's going on. They're, they're just keeping up. But this woman, she can see it. What is it about this woman that allows her to see what's going to actually happen to Christ? Let's see if we can get to the bottom of that. Um, let me go through a few details in our story that are easy to read over. But we've now done the work. So some of these should, like, it should spark. Uh, the first one we read is that Jesus is in a city, or really a village. Uh, what's the village he's in? Bethany. Okay, Jesus is in a village called Bethany. Now, we've looked at Bethany before. Bethany is a village outside of a village outside of the city. It's, uh, as we, we looked at it a few weeks ago now, Bethany is a village that, actually, the word Bethany means house of mercy, um, many people think Bethany is a leper colony. It's where you go to die. Jesus chooses, so every day Jesus goes into the city, often into the temple, every day of this last week. But at night, he chooses to spend his nights in Bethany, where many people are dying. Uh, the story of Lazarus, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. You know, Jesus' friend who dies, John 11. Uh, Jesus goes to Bethany, uh, where, John, where Lazarus has died. Shouldn't surprise us knowing that Bethany's where a lot of people go to die. This is like an ancient hospice room. It's where you go to die. Uh, if you were a leper, it was an incurable disease at the time. They didn't know how to deal with it. And so you just separate them from the rest of the community. You keep them at a distance. Um, but, but so many of our stories, almost every story that has to do with Bethany deals with death. Lazarus dies. Uh, here we read about a man named Simon the leper. They're in a house of Simon the leper. Uh, leprosy is incurable. Le Simon the leper is most likely going to die of leprosy. This woman, most likely, almost certainly, is poor. How do we know she's poor? She lives in Bethany. Most likely, maybe, she's here to die in Bethany. Now think about how, um, remember the disciples' response when she pours out her perfume, expensive bottle of perfume, there's estimates of how expensive it would be, but it's an expensive bottle of perfume. It's easily, almost certainly, the most expensive thing she owns. She pours out the perfume. Do you remember the response of the disciples? We should sell this and give it to the poor. Think about how tone deaf that is in Bethany, right? Think about that. That'd be like if... Uh, a 20-year-old dude comes to a mom of twins and, she, and says, like, dude, I'm so tired. You'd be like, really? You're tired? Okay. Um, or, or it'd be like, maybe less humorous, but it'd be like, uh, some, like your daughter's got a cold and you're complaining to a mom whose daughter's going through chemo. It's like, are you missing the, like, where you are here? Like, this is the poor. Like, sell it to the poor. This is the poor. Why do you not see it? This is the poor. Why can she see it? And they can't see it. Why are there blinders on? Here's my hypothesis. My hypothesis. Um, has Jesus been clear with his disciples so far that he's going to die? Would you agree? The answer is yes. Four times he said, I'm going to die. He's been clear. Do you think if he's choosing to spend his nights in Bethany, some of his very best friends are in Bethany, if Jesus, do you think he, does it feel like he's trying to keep this a secret that he's going to die? Do you think maybe he's told 
the people at Bethany he's going to die to? Seems like a reasonable hypothesis. I think maybe he's told this woman that he's going to die. He's told the disciples again and again and again and again. I do think maybe he's told this woman, I'm going to die too. Why can she see it why they can't? My hypothesis is because for her, death is not something she could avoid. This is where she lived. This is what she saw day in and day out. When Jesus comes to her and says, I'm going to die, she doesn't try to control it. She doesn't deny it. What she does is she's in, in the most humble, beautiful way she can imagine. She takes her best possession and she pours it out for Jesus. It's like a way of saying, I'm not, I can't change what you're going to go through. I wish I could. If you ever had a loved one who's going through something really hard, it's like, you, you know, like, I can't fix this. But, Jesus, you need to know that you are more valuable to me than even my most valuable possession. You need to know I'm going through it with you. I will not leave you. In fact, if you follow Jesus to the cross, the, the dudes, all the disciples, with the exception of John, they run. She stays. I'm here with you. She's able to see Jesus in a moment in Jesus' life where he needs a friend to see him. In fact, if you just read the story closely, it's what Jesus seems to be craving. I just want a friend. He knows what's in front of him. He understands that he has to do this, but he wants a friend to do it with him, like just to, to be present with him in this moment. Read the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. Just stay awake with me. This is my last hour. Just stay awake with me. They can't do it. It's like in this moment, she needs to tell Jesus, Jesus, I see what you're going through. I, uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I, um, this has been a season of reflection for me. I, um, really, there's been two big, uh, kind of big milestones that have caused me to reflect a little more than normal. Normally, I'm a take the next hill kind of guy, but I've been doing a little bit more personal reflection. Uh, the, two, the two moments are I turn 40 in just over a month, and so that's one of those big milestones. And then uh, I, uh, on November 1st, I, um, I celebrated my 10th year as pastor of South Harbor Church. And so I've been here 10 years and just reflecting back on the last decade of ministry with, uh, with each other. And, um, and I've just been doing a lot of reflection, like, okay, what's been of value? What feels like... I have a friend who talks about sermons as sandcastle art. He's like, you make a sandcastle, then you throw it in the ocean, and you start over next week. So like, what sermons feel like, okay, that was helpful, and, and what feels like a sandcastle? And... Uh, and uh, I was talking to somebody after the, after the service last week, and um, because a lot of my friends are turning 40, some of you are turning 40, and somebody here who's a friend turned, turned 40, and uh, we were talking about turning 40, and uh, he just had a party, and he's like, you know, we were talking about reflecting, and he says, you know, I think reflection is what we're supposed to do when we turn 40. I was thinking about that this week. I think reflection is what we're supposed to do. That's not the message you see on Instagram, Right? Like, what you see on Instagram is things like 40 is the new 30, or uh, you're only as young as you feel. Or, I mean, and those are all good memes. They're good memes. But at some level, you have to ask, like, are those memes, are they so popular because most of us don't want to actually look in the mirror and realize we're getting older, and we know where that's going, right? Eventually, getting older is going to go, so we, we don't want to look at it. And I know 40 is not dying. I'm not saying that. I, I get that. Um, but I also know that, it's, I know that 40 isn't 30, if we're honest, right? Like, I've been here 10 years, and uh, I, I, every once in a while, Facebook will remind me of pictures of myself 10 years ago. I don't look the same as I did 10 years ago. The hair's a little grayer, a little whiter on the sides. Um, 
And then uh, I'm noticing, I've, well, I have glasses. No, I didn't have glasses 10 years ago. Um, and the, the lines around the eyes, all right? And those are all kind of little, little trivial things. Um, but I also notice, like, just in terms of, like, personality, things shift. Like, once you start realizing, I think it's a good thing. I like it, actually. Um, I, I'm learning that one of the most powerful words in the English language is nah. Just try it out. It's, uh, I didn't know how to do this in my 20s and 30s. I was, like, uh, early 30s. I, I had, like, a FOMO, fear of missing out. And so if you said, hey, let's go out, I'd be like, yeah, let's do that. Even if I didn't want to. But now I'm learning, nah. <laughs> Not a no. No can be rude. It's like... But is it 10 o'clock? Nah, I'm going to go to bed. It's, it's, it's kind of nice. It's, I'm learning about myself that uh, when the band plugs in at the restaurant, check please. <laughs> That's a new thing. I, was, I, I don't want I, I to I shout. I've learned uh, the old, I, so my ear, I, I, my hearing, I don't know if my hearing's gone or what, but um, periodically, like I can't hear people. And I, so I'll be like, can you repeat that? And then they'll repeat it and I'll try one more time. Like say that one more time. And, uh, and then if I can't hear them the third time, I just learn to say, oh, yeah. <laughs> no idea what you said, but yeah, yeah. Uh, now, again, all, all trivial things. Um, but what I also am realizing as I am getting older, and I know some of you, uh, you've experienced this yourselves, but um, age is wearing off some sharp edges that I think I had in my youth. That I'm still not, God needs to do a lot of work yet on wearing those off, but I'm seeing that in myself, um, some sharp edges. I think I'm more patient than I was 10 years ago. I think I'm a better parent and a husband than I was 10 years ago. Uh, and then the big one is I was just thinking back to 10 years ago here. And uh, there are decisions that I would make because it's, it's like a good business move or it's a good growth move or whatever it is that I wouldn't make anymore because uh, people are real and people's feelings matter. And there's just some sharp edges that I think God has had to wear off. And I wonder if the collateral damage, uh, the collateral damage of not paying attention to it. 40 is a new 30. You're only as young as you feel. I wonder if the collateral damage is, as a culture, in avoiding death and aging, we potentially are missing the opportunity for wisdom. Uh, knowledge is, uh, I know the right answer. Wisdom is, and I know the consequences of not doing the right thing, Right? Uh, knowledge will say, knowledge knows the, the arguments, often finds itself in arguments to prove it's right, but wisdom realizes that the arguments probably aren't the most, winning an argument is not a fruit of the spirit. Love is, right? I think that comes with, that comes with wisdom. Um, and the authors of our Bible, by the way, they want us to know this so bad. Like they, you cannot read your scriptures, especially the book of Proverbs, without this like, they're trying hard to help us see this. So we'll say things as a culture like, rinse away the gray. You know what they said? Uh, this is Proverbs 16. Gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained in the way of righteousness. It's a crown. Uh, we call models or salespeople, uh, we call them on social media, we call them influencers. You know what, the, what our scriptures tell us, the people who are influential? Listen to this. Numbers 8. The Lord said to Moses... This applies to the priests. Men 25 years, or more, years old or more shall come to take part in the work of the temp, at the tent of meeting. But at the age of 50, they must retire from their regular service and no longer work. Did you know this was in your Bible? Uh, they may assist their brothers in performing their duties in the tent of meeting, but they themselves must not do the work. Gray hair, your scriptures are telling you, is a crown. Uh, influence, you want to be an influencer... There's a certain age where you have wisdom 
And your job is to influence the next generation, according to your Bible. Those of you who are below that age, your job is to recognize that there are things you don't know. Your job is to recognize there are people who have done this before who might know a little bit more. And your job is to listen. Uh, 25 years ago or so, I think, um, I think that we had something happen in the church. So not our church, we're not 25 years old. But I think in the American church, something happened that borders on heresy. We began about 25 years ago, some of you lived through this, you were part of this, but we began 25 years ago dividing our churches along age lines. We would never say that. What we we would say is we're going to divide our churches up into contemporary and traditional services, where essentially the traditional service, we're going to play the music that those who are older like to sing and, and, and worship to. And then the traditional ser- or contemporary services, we're going to play music that younger people like to worship and sing to. The net effect of those was it divided our churches into older and younger people, right? It actually it was successful in what it set out to do. We had young people go to one service, and the rock band would plug in, and the hands would be up. And then we had older people go to another service, and it was organ, and it was hymns. And we ended up... 25 years ago, taking church and dividing it into age groups. Some of you were part of a church that did this. I do not think it's a coincidence that around the exact same time we started to see the numbers of people who claim Christ and the church in general decline. I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, Why? To understand that, uh, I want to talk to you about a guy from a band called Nine Inch Nails. Have you heard of that band? <laughs> His name is Trent Reznor. You didn't see that coming, did you? Uh, Trent Reznor. Uh, in 1994, Trent Reznor, in his mid-20s, wrote a song called Hurt. Uh, this particular song, when he wrote it, um, he was hoping, and he acknowledges this, he was hoping that this song would make him famous. What he recognized was he was, he was young, he was ambitious, and he wrote this song and realized he had just written something powerful, really powerful, lyrically powerful. Now, when people talk about the song Hurt, they don't talk about Nine Inch Nails or Trent Reznor. Um, When people talk about the song Hurt, they talk about someone else. Do you remember who? Yeah, man. In 2002, a man named Johnny Cash went into the studio. Uh, Fascinating story. It's been decades at this point since Johnny Cash had recorded anything. It's been decades since he was uh, in a spotlight and stood on a stage and played music. And um, just prior to this, he received the news that he and his wife, June, of 35 years, they were both dying. So right before he recorded the song, he goes into the studio, realizes I'm dying, and he sits on a bench. None of the flair of his youth, none of, uh, none of the, the spotlights, and just him and a guitar. And four months later, his wife will die. Three months after that, Johnny Cash will, will follow. He will die. Now, he records the song. The song is the same. Uh, same melody, same words. Uh, same song. Same song as Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. Same, same song, same melody, same words. But when Johnny sat on that stool and he played his guitar, the song was different. He didn't want to prove anything. He had nothing left to prove. He didn't need a hit song. He had plenty of hit songs. Uh, even if he got famous, he's going to die. What's, who, like, Johnny Cash, before he died, uh, he had just found God. He had just found faith. And he wanted to record something that mattered, something that made people 
feel something. He wanted to give his last like, artistic endeavor to making people feel something. He wanted to record something honest. Uh, Trent Reznor, the, uh, the author of Hurt, um, watched the video for the song. And after watching the video, he says these words. He says, I popped the video in and wow, tears welling, silence, goosebumps, wow. I felt like I just lost my girlfriend because that song isn't mine anymore. Let me show you uh, the video that he's referring to. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real the needle tears a hole the old familiar sting try to kill it all away but I remember everything what have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all My empire of dirt If I 
Trent Reznor, the author of the song, said, I watched the video, and I realized the song isn't mine anymore. It doesn't belong to me. Uh, There are things that a 20-year-old trying to become famous can write, good words, powerful words, true words, um, that uh, a man in his 70s who's about to lose his wife and then his life uh, understands at a level that a 20-year-old just can't. And when Johnny Cash takes the glass of wine and with shaking hands pours it out over his possessions and talks about his, you can have it all, my empire of dirt, it means something more knowing that this man isn't trying to be famous. He's got all of the things that many of us work for, and he gets to the end, and I love the moment where it pans back out to his wife and then a couple of pictures of his loved ones. There's something powerful about somebody who who sees it, understands it. We see in our story this poor woman who understands what's going to happen to Christ. She sees it, takes her best possession, and she pours it out. I think when a culture, and we live in one, um, when, we, when we choose to say to those of, in our world who are older, you're no longer valuable, we are at risk of losing something. When we continue to elevate those who are older, or I'm sorry, those who are younger, they're our influencers, they're the culture setters, at the expense of those who are older, we are at risk of losing something. When we as a culture do everything we can to conquer death, to avoid death, to not look at death, I think we're at risk of losing something. This woman has a perspective, because she'll look at death, she has a perspective on life that I worry as a culture we are losing. Um, A couple questions. Uh, Let me start with those of you who are older. Um, For those of you who are older, have you given up? That's a tough question. Have you given up? Um, have you uh, bought the lie that you can retire from, uh, from influence or from faith? Um, uh, have you found yourself ever embracing the attitude that I've already put in my time? I don't have to do that. I already put in my time. Uh, I asked a question a few, uh, like, I don't know, it was about a decade ago. I asked a question that I was thinking about a lot back then. And when I first posed this question, somebody was really mad at me. So it's probably a good question. I'll pose it again um, because it probably... Uh, But I wonder, I've thought a lot about this one, actually. For those of you who are older, what happens when your time, if you're older, many many in our church, financially, you carry a lot of the weight of our church. What happens when those of you who are older um, pull back? Uh, There's a new new phenomenon in our world, this brand new phenomenon. We call it snowbirds. (laughs) What happens when all of the wisdom in the room leaves for an entire season? No, I'm not, this is not an indictment. If I, like, please don't hear it that way. Like, you've definitely earned the opportunity, absolutely. I just asked the question. Uh, those of you who are younger, I'm gonna keep myself in that category for now. <laughs> uh, have we made those who are older feel unimportant? It's a real question. Have we uh, em- ever embraced an attitude that's really common in youth that we know more and we're not gonna listen? Uh, have, we, have we driven those who are older away because they don't feel valued? They don't feel heard? Uh, do we, have you rolled your eyes at somebody who's older because they share their opinion and you think, oh, like, this is a real question. Are we aware of the sacrifice of older generations? Um, are we aware of the, 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 
for especially a church like this, many who, who are older in our church, the worship style is not your preferred style, probably, right? This is, you're sac- you've sacrificed a preference, not always, but sometimes, a preference for the sake of those for passing down the faith. Like, uh, have we said thank you? Real simple words. Um, but have we actually said thank you? I think what's really revolutionary and what's needed in our world is not a young, hip church. Jesus never talked about young, hip churches, right? I don't think that, not interesting at all to Jesus was this idea of a young, hip church. You know what's interesting is when a 70-year-old begins mentoring a 17-year-old. That's interesting. You know what's really interesting is when a couple who's been married for 50 years begins walking alongside newlyweds. That's what's interesting. When a Grandpa teaches a new dad how to do it. That's interesting. Actually, let me get, I'll get really practical, then I'll wrap up. Uh, um, Over the last few months, we've been developing a relationship with the Oaks Assisted Living Facility um, right down our street. And Joe and Marge Malinsky are putting together a group who are going to surprise uh, the Oaks with some Christmas caroling. And uh, I want you to mark your calendars for December 20th at 6.30 p.m. Um, because we would love for you to join us. We'll get more information in the weeks ahead, but we would love for you to join us. Let me just, let me wrap up there. Um, would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Lord, I'm reminded of the, the line in the s- story that uh, you shared, Jesus, that this woman, whenever we tell the good news gospel story, this woman's story will be part of it. Uh, Lord, our prayer is that you would help us to recognize by looking at death, by not avoiding it, by not avoiding aging, um, by not avoiding the pain that our bodies begin to feel as we age, Lord, by not avoiding it, Lord, would you help us to take um, more seriously the life we have been given? Lord, would you help us to look around? Uh, Lord, would you help us to take the wisdom we've accumulated and pour it down? And Lord, for those of us who are younger, would you help us to humble ourselves to listen? Uh, Jesus, we thank you for this, uh, this moment um, where you remind us. Uh, and Lord, we pray that as a church that lives in a culture that uh, is increasingly becoming obsessed with young, uh, tight skin and abs, uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to become obsessed with growing in wisdom. Jesus, we pray this in your name. And everybody said? We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.